go to the Lord in prayer. Oh Lord, what a joy it is to be able to to gather once again with your people, your church, in this assembly. Lord, I think the thing over the last year you have taught us is to not take this time for granted. To realize that even in the simple gathering, not a production, a program, not an event, but the gathering of the body of Christ. Represented in this local church and other local churches is a beautiful, wonderful, just glorious creation of yours. And Lord, as we open up your word today, Lord, I ask that you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to comprehend, and hearts to receive what you'd have us to receive today. And Lord, I pray that we will apply, apply it and Lord, that you will be glorified through it. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, go ahead and open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And as you do, happy Valentine's Day uh, to all of you. Thank you. Now, for, for the gentleman in the room who... This may be news for that today is Valentine's Day. Well, um, I don't know whether to tell you I'm sorry um, or you're welcome um, in this moment, but I uh, appreciate uh, the Valentine's greeting um, that was given. But uh, so good to be back together again this morning. And as we begin this morning, I'd, I'd ask you to think about the word unity. Simple word, unity. It's a word that we've heard a lot lately, isn't it? A word that we've heard a lot within our country. Various calls for unity. It's not hard to understand why we hear these calls. It's not hard to understand at all because everywhere we turn, there's apparent division. Political division Racial division, gender division, sexual division, COVID division, vaccine division, family division, all of it, all of it bleeding over in some way, shape, or form into local churches all over the world. And doing what as it does? 
creating, working to create disunity. But just in thinking about the, the cries for unity, the calls for unity, where whether they're political calls or cries or social cries or whether they're cries within the church, at their core, I, I believe they're innately, innately biblical cries. And here's why. A call for unity stems from a longing for what's wrong to be made right. It's a, it's a fundamental awareness that, that we're living in a broken world. It's not supposed to be this way. And as image bearers of God, of which we all are, disunity is unsettling to us. It's a deep awareness that, that, that it's not, again, it's not supposed to be this way. Why is it that we have this, this deep awareness? Well, here's why. It's because God himself, again, who we're all created in the image of, has for all eternity dwelt in perfect love relationship, a loving unity within himself, the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God eternally existent in three persons, forever living in perfect loving unity. But what does sin do to we who are image bearers of God? It divides. Sin divides. Sin, sin takes unity and creates disunity. Disunity between us and, and God and disunity between one another. And again, we know at the core of who we are it's not supposed to be this way. But what the first three chapters of Ephesians have, have taught us is that unity can exist. In fact, it does exist. Again, it's, an, it's eternally existent within the Godhead. And we, and we are invited into it. I right, think about this, church. We're invited into this unity, to experience this unity, to know this unity, to live out this unity. And the question there is how? The answer, in Christ. As chapter 1, verse 10 tells us that the person and work of Christ, that in the person and work of Christ, God set forth his plan for the fullness of time. To what? To unite, to unite all things to him. Chapter 2, as we saw of Ephesians, then giving us a, a beautiful picture of what this unity looks like. God, God bringing people together from all different ethnicities and backgrounds and social classes, all into one family called the church. And this is our spiritual reality. If we're in Christ, we are in this moment unified with God and with one another. And we can't, get this, we can't be any more unified with God or with one another spiritually if we are in fact in Christ than we are right now in this very moment. I cannot be any more unified than we are right 
now spiritually. And this unity we share in Christ is the manifold wisdom of God that we as the church are to make known. A wisdom that makes even the angels worship. World around us sees our unity. Unity like this. It's like, how is this possible? It goes against everything that they're seeing in the world. Like, how? Like, how is this possible? And our answer, church, Jesus. Jesus. I got nothing else for you. Jesus is the answer. But sadly, sadly, when the world looks at the church today, unity isn't typically what comes to mind. It's not likely what comes to many of your minds immediately. We affirm the spiritual reality, yes. We know it's the ideal, yes. One day down the road, someday, yes. But functionally, practically, eh, just don't see it. It's not something many of us, if any of us, have really truly ever experienced. Maybe you have, praise God if you have. In fact, many of us within this body are members of this body because of disunity that we've experienced in other local churches. And so what do we do? Well, we bring that hurt and that pain and those fears with us. We bring them with us here. These raised walls that have to then be torn down to, to overcome that barrier and to bring about unity but let's be honest we also all of us have those that who we love those who would profess Christ profess to be Christians who've been so jaded and so wounded by disunity that they have seen and experienced within the church they've simply walked away from the church altogether and now may even feel as though they're better off without it and then you have the watching world who sees and hears of the disunity within local churches, whether it's political, racial, social, over the color of a carpet, it exists. Whatever it may be, they hear this and, and they honestly say, well, why would I ever need or want that? <laughs> why? I have more unity in the community that I'm a part of than I'll ever see within the local church. All because they don't see the church as a city on a hill. They don't see the church as a light in the darkness. Rather, they see the church as being a part of the problem. And honestly, if, if I were looking at the church through their eyes, I may respond in much of the same way especially after this past year. And maybe that's where you find yourself today. Maybe that's where those around you in your circles of influence find themselves today, jaded, skeptical, and just really unsure. 
Yeah, you know, again, unity is the ideal. You know that's the way it's supposed to be. But you just don't see it. And at this point, you're just at the point of saying, I'm not even sure if it's possible. So what I want to do, starting today, is move from the doctrine that we've looked at in the first three chapters to the practice of unity. I want to look at how, how this type of unity is possible within the church, not just spiritually, but practically. I want to put some legs to our theology, if you will. So look with me at Paul's letter, chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. As far as we're going today in chapter 4. Because what we have within these three verses are the foundational principles for maintaining genuine biblical unity within the local church. Want, want real unity lived out? You have to have these, these things. Want to walk in, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called? As Paul urges in this text, have to have these things that are mentioned in verse 2. But before we get to those things, let's, let's look at two questions. Question number one, what is the calling to which we have been called? And the answer is real simple. We who are in Christ have been called to be children of God. Chapter 1, verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption. And what, what do children do? Like in a sense, we, we take on the image of our father, right? We take on the image of our parents. And we can all relate to this, can we not? Both in good and bad ways, like of how we have taken on the image of our parents. Again, whether we want to or desire to or not, you, you, you say something, you do something, you look in the mirror or whatever it may be. And you're like, oh, snap, like that's my dad or oh, snap, that's my mom. And like, you, you know, right? Things that you cringe at and things that make you smile. We who are in Christ, in very much the same way, we are called to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Meaning our, our thoughts and our actions and our demeanor is to reflect that of our Heavenly Father. All attributes we see made known through Christ. Which brings about the second question. How can one walk in a manner worthy of this calling? And the answer to this question depends in large part how we define the word worthy here. Because if we, if we come at this, the idea that worthy equals merit, that worthy equals earned, then it's impossible. Absolutely impossible. Might as well go ahead and quit now because it's not going to happen. As the knowledge of, of our election, 
chapter 1, and our adoption and our inheritance in Christ, it just shatters, actually just implodes any idea of a merit-based worthiness. <laughs> it is, it's gone. Nothing we can do to merit God's grace and the spiritual blessings that he has lavished upon us. Nothing. Now what Paul is passionately urging here is for the Ephesian church to, to live in such a way that aligns with this calling. To aligns with who they are in Christ. See, we don't earn the right to be God's children any more than we earned the right to be born physically in the first place. But as my parents' son, what I say and do, it reflects upon the family as a whole, does it not? Good or bad. So I'm to live in a way that honors my family name, that honors my father. That's what Paul is urging here, that if in fact we're chosen to be holy and blameless, chapter 1, then we are to live lives that are then holy and blameless before the Lord. We're to live lives that make known the spiritual unity that we have in Christ. And that brings the question then of how? How do we do this? How do we as the church live this way, in this manner? Well, five ways, starting number one. Christians are called to walk with all humility. And I don't know about you, but I read that, I see that in the text, and I'm like, huh, like I've already failed. Like miserably, miserably failed. As I, I know my heart is so full of pride. But honestly, the more I think about this, that's probably a good awareness starting point. And here's why. Because in order for us to walk with all humility, we, we have to be have, to have an honest assessment of who we are in light of knowing who God is. And the reality is when we look at who God is as holy, 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 even our best of efforts do not align, do not match up. The reality is we've all failed. We've all sinned and fallen woefully short of the glory of, of God. We are all in this room sinfully prideful people. Start thinking of ourselves higher than we ought, higher than we actually are, and it's going to be impossible for us to practice biblical humility. But from here, from, from this vantage point in an honest assessment, it sets the stage for, for how we see and value the world, the, the worth of the people around us, particularly our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ within the church. How, how do we view one another? Knowing none of us are better than. You just take a look around this room and none of us are better than anyone else. But how do we live? Inwardly thinking, pride, sinfully prideful people. But the reality is we all have rough edges. 
some really sharp edges at times. But it's got to be filed down. And when we can understand this about ourselves and one another, it radically changes how we, we think and engage with one another. As it reminds us that our only boast is in Christ and his righteousness. And it's in his footsteps that we are to follow. Look with me at Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8, instructing us to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, there's the word, humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Brothers and sisters, this is the humility we are to walk in with one another, counting others more significant than ourselves, looking to the interests of others, emptying ourselves on behalf of others, obedient to God to the point of death. And friends, we're not going to will ourselves to even desire these things, much less do them any more than a dead person can make himself alive. Such humility requires the Spirit's work in our life. It requires us to daily turn our, our gaze, our attention upon Christ and the cross, reflecting upon his humility and repenting of our pride, thanking God for the grace that he has given us through Christ. Number two, Christians are called to walk with gentleness. And oh, friends, again, I am reminded of my failures here. Failures as a husband. So many conversations I could have handled with more gentleness. As a father, responding way too harsh to even sometimes the, the simplest of things. As a pastor, like where do I even start? And then I turn my eyes upon Jesus. And while his gentleness oh so highlights my lack of gentleness even more, I still find comfort. I pray that you find comfort. I think of Matthew chapter 11 verses 28 through 30 where Jesus says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, did you hear what Jesus said there? What he said, he said, first, come to me. You will find rest for your souls. Oh, I need this rest. We all need this rest. I, I need this gentleness. I'd like to crush this bruised reed. 
But second, he says, learn from me. Learn from me. A reminder, I still, we still have so much to learn in this, don't we? So much. And Jesus is here to teach us through his word. As Dane Ortland tells us in his book, Gentle and Lowly, this is the one place in the Bible where the Son of God, he pulls back the veil. And lets us peer way down into the core of who he is. The one whom all things were created through and for and who holds all things together is gentle and lowly at heart. This is who he is. This is who Jesus is. This is what defines him. This is how he defines himself. Not, with, not by strength, though he is all-powerful. Not by knowledge, though he is all-knowing. But by gentleness. Gentle and lowly. You know how we can define that? As strength under control. Strength under control. Not, not out to crushingly win every debate, though he could, right? But gentle. You know, I picture the, like a picture of, of strength under control. And, and I think of a parent tenderly holding a newborn baby. Parent possessing the power to crush. But with strength under control, embracing the child with tender gentleness and care. Oh, friends, right now we may see ourselves, we may see our views of the world events that are taking place, see our, our thoughts, our mindset as the stronger view, as the right view. We've got this one right and everybody around us has got this, or everybody who thinks differently than us has got this one wrong. And as a result, we may be tempted to, to look at those with differing views as weaker brothers and sisters. Conversations then turning to unhealthy debates, void of humility and gentleness. I think we can all say we've been there at some point or time or another. But moments like that do, do nothing to foster unity. Thus the need for humility laced with gentleness. Gentleness laced with humility. We must not crush. And yes, I, I know this is really, really, really hard at times. Especially when you're convinced that you're right. But just because someone thinks differently than you politically, as an example doesn't mean that their view is, is unbiblical. We can give so many examples here. But see, we're, we're so quick to label in terms of either or, right or wrong, us versus them. But could it be, quite possibly, could it be that a position of humility laced with gentleness could, could open our eyes to a more nuanced understanding of how others may approach areas of disagreement and yet still be pursuing the same goal? See, this isn't a call for passivity or for Christians to be doormats or not to hold really strong convictional beliefs and state them firmly. 
We do. We must. We're a convictional people. But what this is a call to is to humbly listen and gently but winsomely engage with fellow Christians who differ with us about any number of things. But who in Christ we have unity with. See, if unity has any chance of being lived out within the local church, then humility laced with gentleness must exist. And for this to exist, we must continually turn our eyes upon Jesus, who is gentle and lowly at heart, and learn from him. Number three, Christians are called to walk with patience. And if this were a test, I'd already be at strike three. Oh, friends, I think of this because (laughs) patience is oh so hard. Is it not? I'm not even patient with myself, like much less other people. I heard someone describe patience as long-suffering towards aggravating people. (laughs) And you're like, yeah, that sums it up. That's the story of my life right there. Long-suffering with aggravating people. And the truth is, anyone who thinks differently than us can easily aggravate us. Because in our flesh, we are an easily aggravated and impatient people. But pause for a moment and think upon the, the patient love God has shown us in Christ. As we deserve his wrath. For we, in our, in our sin, are, are beyond a mere aggravation to God. I mean, I sit there and it's easy for me to poke at the Israelites in the Old Testament and their repeated sins and be like, God, like how could you be patient with them? God's grace abounding it over and over and over again. They willfully go back into their sin. Oh, the aggravation God must have felt. But friends, you and I are no different. We, we can't even begin to comprehend how aggravating we in our sin are to God. Yet 2 Peter 3, 9, we're reminded the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Think about it, friends. Like, the Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. No church, I'm so thankful for the patient love God shows towards his children. Just consider where we'd be without the gentle patience of God. And if God in Christ can be patient with us, can we not be patient with one another? Friends, it's not an impossibility. For we've been given the power through the Holy Spirit to do just that. Patience and gentleness, both being the fruits of the Spirit that, must, that we must work to cultivate. And yes, it's hard, but without patience with one another, unity cannot practically exist. Number four, Christians are called to walk bearing with one another in love. Now, what do we mean by bearing with one another in love? 
Well, I would define it as mutual loving tolerance. What's the key to a long, healthy marriage? Mutual loving tolerance. Just think of all, all your spouse, that all your spouse and your family have to put up with with you. Just take a moment and think about that, right? And they still love you. Still love you. You know what that is? Mutual loving tolerance. And by tolerance, I'm not saying that Christians should turn a, a blind eye and a deaf ear to one another's sins. A loving spouse should never tolerate their spouse having an affair. But a loving spouse should be mindful that their spouse is a sinner. In the church, we should never tolerate unrepentant sin in some, super, in some superficial effort to maintain unity. But we must bear with one another in love with a full realization that we are all sinners. Every single one of us. We will sin against one another. We have and we will. Not intentionally, Lord willing, but we will. We will respond in ways that are not Christ-like, not gentle. And when this happens, we don't tolerate it in the sense of passive amnesia because we're scared to offend. It's like a spouse overlooking an affair. And just as it's no way to maintain a healthy marriage, it's no way to maintain biblical unity. When sin is present, we humbly, gently, and patiently confront it in love. See, Christian unity doesn't in any way, big or, or small, sweep evil under the rug. Nor does it brush off a loving critique or avoid all sense of conflict in some effort to maintain unity. But now pressing a little bit further here, pressing a little further into what I mean by mutual loving tolerance, it's tolerance that endures that which is unpleasant or difficult on behalf of another. So it may be a personality that is radically different than yours. Those exist within our body, do they not? People who are radically different than you? Absolutely. But mutual loving tolerance is accepting them for who they are in Christ. Just as you want them to accept you. Because each and every one of us have things that, that could, maybe even do, great on one another. Right? Like nails on a chalkboard, great. Now, we don't want to come out and just say that to somebody because we don't want to offend them. But it's like when, they, when Jeremy does this, it's, it's just what it feels like. Or maybe it's not that blatant. Maybe it's just drip, drip, drip. It's just it, it burdensome. It's bothersome. Now, if you don't recognize these things within others within the church, you don't recognize things that, that are kind of, burdensome to you, bothersome to you, kind of maybe great on you in some way, shape, or form, it means you don't know one another well enough. Because I guarantee you right now, we did a little exercise and said, hey, we could all make a list of the things that great on us about our parents, children. 
Spouses, children with parents, make a list. We can, no problem. I can just start right now. Leslie can go all day long with things about me, right? Just putting them down one after the other. Why? That's what it means to do life together. And when you learn these things about one another, and yes, there's going to be different levels of intimacy within the church. It's not going to be equally shared by everyone. But we maintain unity by, by lovingly bearing with one another. Love. But we maintain unity by lovingly bearing with one another when we put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And we do it we do it because it's what Christ did for us at the cross. Jesus bearing our sin upon his sinless shoulders. Number five, Christians must be eager to maintain unity of the spirit. So very important thing here to, to notice the word maintain. Paul doesn't say create but maintain. Why? Because it's the important and needed reminder that church unity isn't the creation of man, but of God. Meaning it's there. It exists. And what's needed is we who are already united in Christ being eager to maintain that which God himself has already established. Already created, which is why I like the word eager, as it puts forth the idea of an intense desire, effort to maintain unity. It's the realization that unity is active. It's not passive. We don't just casually drift into unity. We can drift out, but we cannot drift in which is why we have to swim against the currents of this world, which are constantly looking to pull us away and to divide us. Because church, if the world can't look at us, if the world cannot look at us as the church and see unity, it will never find it. Constantly looking, eagerly longing, perpetually trying, but never achieving. Why? Because unity cannot and will not be found in the things of this world. Will not be found in, in politics, will not be found through coexisting or calls for racial harmony, or anything else that this world attempts to, to call and manufacture unity. Unity is found in one place and in one person, the cross of Christ. And so I pray that in these most uncertain and divisive of times, that we will be the city on the hill, that we will be the light in the darkness, that we will make known the manifold wisdom of God through our lived out unity that we are so eager to maintain.
And this is what we're going to continue to talk about in, in the weeks ahead. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, as we think about biblical unity, we thank you for, for uniting us to yourself through Christ. We thank you for, for his humility and gentleness and patience that led him to bear our sinful burden in love upon the cross. And we ask that we as your children will, through the power of the Holy Spirit, eagerly seek to, to walk in his footsteps and maintain the unity that you yourself have created. May we be the light on the hill. May we be the, the light in the darkness. And those things that look to make our, our light grow dim, convict us of them. Remove them so that your manifold wisdom may be made known. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's continue in worship. <laughs>